Sometimes it really feels like you've seen everything or you've seen it all or a genre or subgenre is flat out tired and there's no way to innovate anymore. And then you see something that absolutely shuts you up. I'm George Edelman, host of the No Film School podcast and editor-in-chief at No Film School. And my guests today on the podcast are editors Jonathan Redman and Matt Villa. And then in the second part, cinematographer Mandy Walker. They all worked on Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. Elvis is a big, old, musical, biopic. Biopic or biopic? Is there a ruling on how it's said? I've always thought it was biopic. Either way, this is huge. It's Elvis. Come on. It's as big as something like this gets. It's been in the works forever. It's Baz Luhrmann. He has an appetite for this massive kind of adaptation. I mean tried to turn Great Gatsby into a big movie and Romeo and Juliet. Like This guy is not afraid of the big topics. And he always puts his own personal spin and slant and dizzying style on top of it, which means from the go, you're, on, you're in for a ride when you're in a Baz Luhrmann movie. But what I really get into with Mandy, Jonathan, and Matt is that Baz said biopic was a dirty word. They wanted to do something different and stay away from convention. And they did. And one of the ways they did that is through these amazing sequences that take you through backstories, flashbacks, stories people are telling, memories people are having, all through beautiful editing that was shot in a super specific way. These are the people who did it and collaborated on doing it. And here's how they did it. And the real lesson in all of this is that you can create something truly cinematic in the best sense of that word through planning and prep. There's always a need for more time and more money, even on a project like this. It's so big, how could there not be? And yet these people executed in a very unique and specific way. So we get into all that and so much more on the topic of Elvis and this incredible, vast movie that you absolutely need to see. Uh, we start off with Jonathan and Matt, the editors, and then we'll take a quick break and intro Mandy and then get into that part of it. So enjoy. Guys, I'm so excited to have both of you. There's so much to talk about with the editing of this movie. It feels like it is an editing tour de force, but also just cornucopia. I don't know what words to use. There's there's a lot of editing. <laughs> um, there is a lot. <laughs> so I guess like before I get into anything specific that I want to know, just kind of from a general perspective, what is the approach to cutting all that? You know, how much this is a huge story. This is the story of the life of one of the biggest uh, celebrities and figures of the 20th century. How do you guys collaborating with Baz Luhrmann and everybody else come up with just a game plan? Or like, what, what are you carving out of this giant rock of marble? <laughs> like, of like, you know, I know there's a script, but like, just in terms of when you have all the footage and you're like the pacing and, and, and all of that and just general philosophies, like going into this project, what were the, the principles? I might go first, Matt, if that's okay. Yes, they did. Indeed, my friend. <clears throat> well, George, kind of when I first started, started this project, it was about five years ago, we didn't even have a script. And Baz had an idea about making a movie about Elvis Presley. I think he did have a script in his hand, which uh, he was going to use as a starting point, but a starting point only. And uh, at the beginning of all of Baz's projects, he he basically comes up with an, with an idea and he decides, well, 
I'm going to scratch this itch and see if it's going to work for him. You know, is it a project he can do justice to? Uh, is it a project that's going to suit his style? So way back when we, um, collaboration with, um, Elliot Wheeler and Jameson Shaw, uh, from the music department, he, uh, started, uh, building materials that, uh, this is even before he approached any, any cast or, or, or the studio even. And, um, we created a, a bunch of materials and can you tell me what kind of what kind of materials you do start with there that's that's so interesting to hear well with a subject like Elvis Presley there's a lot of visual materials that current that already exist obviously concert films uh, documentaries he made 20 plus uh, hollywood movies uh, musicals so that's kind of a good place to start with in terms of visual materials Music, there's obviously a huge catalog and we, we were fortunate, fortunate enough to have quite extensive access through RCA to that catalog. Uh, Just him or, or also the things he, he influenced or was influenced by, which includes so much. <laughs> well, in, indeed it does. It was mostly the Elvis Presley kind of, uh, in Got terms it. of, you know, access stems and stuff like that. You know, RCA kind of gave us kind of carte blanche access wow. to, uh, to, to basically access whatever we needed. And we had some very good, uh, Elvis researchers, experts in, in all things Elvis who were able to help out in, in, in telling us, well, this particular song where he recorded it three times and there were five takes with split stems and we're able to kind of access all that kind of material. Wow. And did you, now I'm sorry to keep, you're making this, you're making my job just trying to do this interview harder, but also like you're making it sound even harder to make this movie than I thought it was because there's so much you start with that you're chipping away at. But did you use any of those various stems or pieces in the soundtrack eventually? Anything that's not like what we're all familiar with as the recordings? Oh, for sure. We, we certainly did. I mean, it's probably a, a greater topic for discussion is, is how we kind of approach the, the music in the movie. Uh, but certainly when we, when we hit, hit the seventies, we had, uh, kind of extensive access to stems, um, mm. for, for a, a lot of, a lot of that music and indeed some of the, the music kind of, we refer to them as DNA tracks mm. or the music yeah. guides. We were able to take stems from two or three or four different songs and blend them and kind of create something new. Wow. So all, all, all that kind of music is, is all the way through the movie. Okay, but, so uh, you know, back to it. Yeah, uh, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> go back to that original kind of scratching the itch. You know, Baz kind of uh, eventually came to, uh, we created some visual materials, a lot of music materials. And we eventually got to a place where Baz was excited that, you know, he could kind of create something stylistically in keeping with his style, make it a Baz Lerman film about Elvis. And we, we used those materials to, uh, to, present to the studio to pitch to the studio and uh and also get cast and, and stuff excited um uh, and get them involved in the movie and so uh, there must be a lot of competition historically there haven't been a lot of feature films about him but there's been a lot of content about him there's been television projects there's been feature films so this was a very unique approach and part of what you were doing essentially was helping him cut the pitch or the sizzle right Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, in, in a sense, we're kind of using some of those, uh, some of the, the other Elvis biopics as an example of, of kind of what Baz didn't want to do. 
the expression biopic was almost a dirty word with Baz. Mm. Uh, he, he wanted to make something kind of different. And, can you can you and, say more about about how that manifested? I both of you at any you know just jump. You can always jump in, but like just that, like how how you guys veered out of biopic every time it came up. What it means as a dirty word, I guess. Sorry, Matt. You please go ahead. No, I was no, just no, going to say no, kind no, of yeah. a linear beginning to end. Um, you know, Elvis was born. You know, kind of right, in a okay. movie, and, and he died at the end. <laughs> right, and, you know, okay. we, we, we we jump around through time and space quite a lot in the movie and and always keep the audience on their toes and also using kind of uh, Colonel Parker as a narrative device, you know, also yeah. kind of mixes it up. That's, um, yeah, that's right. As I said, I say the same thing that, yeah, the, uh, the, even the device of, um, of using this guy that, that people had really never heard much about as the narrative device. And it was, we were always cognizant in fact of, because the film starts quite heavily on Colonel Tom Parker, uh-huh. always very, very cognizant of of getting to Elvis kind of reasonably quickly, just so that people weren't sitting there thinking, "Who's this guy?" <laughs> 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 um, uh, you know, Baz. Uh, I think we all uh, have a huge appreciation of the film Amadeus, and it was uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the it wasn't the intention to 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 do Amadeus, but but that was kind of the. The idea of, of um, we're sort of starting from the, the viewpoint of of this uh, of the kind of the, the almost the adversary, um, yeah. and the other thing, George, was uh, just as a, a a little microcosm of of the of of where we veered away from the biopic was you know the the scene as John I said we were always jump, jumping back and forth through time and probably a, a, the the best example of that in the film is the is the weave between um, you know young Elvis. Looking through the the yes. joint cut to the or, or crosses over to the Pentecostal tent, and that's uh, we're cutting to that to the the back back alley of the hayride there, it's, uh, using that as not only as a as a, a time jumping device, but just as a way of a, a very unique way of of weaving in weaving and mashing different types of music together to suggest this is where Elvis got his inspiration from. Yeah, um, I, I I would have picked that out before this interview. I was like, that that's the part of the movie that blew me away the most and that I wanted to talk to you guys the most about if there's any section because I feel like it did something so beautiful in that it, it, it visually manifested the birth of his style or what exactly he did with his music. It contextualized for an audience that might not know what pieces he was putting together and how mm. to create something that people hadn't experienced in this way on this radio station, you know, that was hitting a white audience and, and all of that. But it's kind of also like flashbacks within flashbacks within memories. So you break mm. all mm. kinds of like, you know, to me, I don't want to talk too much, but I want to, I want to hear you guys talk about it, but I just want to plant this thought before you describe approaching that sequence. It was very much like, hey, movie making can be kind of punk rock, not to reference the wrong kind of music, but just we can cut in anything, anytime, anywhere and take you on a trip. And how did you guys talking about it with Baz, like, did you always circle that sequence and were like, hey, we're going to do something crazy here with this? Well, that sequence, there's a, there's a few sequences throughout the film. Oh, in fact, sorry, there's many sequences throughout the film where we are kind of intercutting different times and different um, locations 
together to sort of to drive narrative forward. But that one in particular was one that was always planned for. Uh, a lot of the others just were born out of necessity in the cutting room. But that mm. that particular sequence that we're talking about was always that was always the intention. To uh, so it was the the music was was conceived with that in mind, and and subsequently everything was shot with that in mind. So so we had the virtue of having a bit of a roadmap for that one but yeah and just additionally to to what you mentioned george it was the seeing the inspiration of the music of the sorry the the uh, evolution of the music in elvis's mind and so on but the the additional uh, purpose of that scene was also or uh, to so show that he was he grew up with these people and just in just by in some ways to address the whole you know appropriations of debate over the years and so on that, that that he we really wanted to show that these that he this was the music that he grew up with and loved and was inspired by so that it went a long way to 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 serve that master as well um yes yeah. it it did a lot of work narrative wise you know it did a lot of work through visuals and through cutting mm-hmm. And not mm. through dialogue, that storytelling and building backstory and context. And that's kind of the genius of it from an editing standpoint is that you convey mm. so much about this, the influence, the meaning, the influences, all that without us having to hear someone talk about it, even though you have a narrative device too, which mm. is the Colonel's perspective of all of that. So it's really interesting to see it. I want to ask a little bit about the Colonel framing device and you know, every one, there are a few places in the movie, specifically scenes that happen between Elvis and Priscilla a couple times throughout that don't feel like they're part of the Colonel's frame. Did you guys talk about like, okay, we're outside the Colonel's story right now? <laughs> like, or like where, or, or how did those Priscilla scenes kind of work their way in compared to everything else? Was there a different approach? They're, they're kind of more conventional almost. It never really came up. Would it be fair to say, my friend, that it never really came yeah. up as, as, a, as a conversation point? I think we were we were always aware that the what we were aware of is that the colonel was extremely unreliable as a as a narrator. Yeah. Um, so so he you know he saw Priscilla's arrival as a you know as a threat to him and and continued to do so. So it, it was probably always thematically. A little different as to how Priscilla came onto the scene, but I mean, you're right, George. At the end of the day, uh, those those scenes uh, were outside the framework of, of Colonel. Didn't know what took place in those during those conversations and so on. So, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I guess it, it never really came up as a conversation, other than the fact that we knew that where, where even though those points where we did drift away from the framing device, we were always needed to have give the colonel a perspective on it i see yes like he's watching it from somewhere yes yeah even, yep. even though he wasn't even though he wasn't in that room he's not know, in the room yeah um, yep. but uh but, and, and we had the you know it's we had the 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 uh the virtue of having sort of voiceover just to sort of check back in on what his take on this new girl on the scene was so yeah when you you talked about using pieces of music for DNA, which is just makes me want to re-listen to it all to hear that, because um, you can kind of hear you, you you almost hear some of those early recordings certain ways, and then you hear them later, and you even call back to the original Hayride performance later when he does the he goes back and does it again in the revival. But when you do it visually, because every once in a while, most notably at the end, but every once in a while you kind of snip it in some actual footage 
of actual yeah. Elvis, some things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. How is that all mentally constructed as like, a, we're going to try to blend this line here and there and here's how we're going to do it. Was it always part of the plan? It was always, to, to a certain extent, George, it, it was always part of the plan. Some of it just happened, you know, we were using kind of uh, quite a bit of uh, uh, the original kind of concert material from That's the Way It Is and uh, Elvis Now, the, the mm-hmm. 70s touring show. And we, we indeed do overtly use quite a bit of that footage, you know, shots of crowds and stuff like that. But then in, in a sequence like the um, the Burning Love montage, where we actually are cutting to the real, I was running off stage and running on stage and backstage, but trying not to show his face. Mm. Austin did kind of such an amazing job, uh, as Basil put it, signing the contract with the audience, kind of persuading the audience that he is actually Elvis Presley, that to, to actually kind of mix Austin and the real Elvis too much. Uh, was something we didn't want to confuse the audience or take the audience out of the story. So we tried to do it in, in, in a very subtle and subliminal way and leave it as well, Easter eggs, uh, one could say. Uh, yes, you for, did not. For, for you the true fans. Yeah. Totally did not show his face. And it seemed intentional because you didn't want us to be reminded of any difference at all, which I agree. Like that makes total sense and it, and it worked brilliantly. And then when you do it at the end, it's like so clean in a way. It's like he became yeah. him. Um, yeah. I, I, was that even the discussion? Like, we want to just see him morph into him finally at the end? Maybe not morph into him, but yeah. Um, <laughs> basically, you know, kind of, we shot that s- sequence a uh, couple of different ways. You know, kind of, we weren't too sure if we were actually going to get that footage of the real Elvis singing Unchained uh, Melody. Yeah. Um, even though, you know, we, we kind of originally kind of uh, cut a sequence, you know, five years ago as part of the, the pitch to the studio, we, we actually cut a very emotional sequence to that. So we had Austin in prosthetics, uh, being, you know, kind of quite big and heavy and sweaty, um, <laughs> sing the entire, the entire song. And he did an amazing job. It was, it was extraordinary, but we, we always wanted to, and it was always scripted to, to finish on the real Elvis Presley single and chain melody. So we, we found a, uh, a nice balance, I think, between Austin singing his heart out and then handing over to the real Elvis at, at, at the end and when we were fortunate enough to, to get that footage. Yeah, it works really well. And then you sort of see his youth. You see real Elvis in his youth and you're like, oh my God, it's Elvis. Like it was just this kind of beautiful, kind of gentle moment. I don't know how else to describe it, but like when you suddenly cut to him full-faced, the man from history is very different in a way. And mm. uh, it, it kind yeah. of brings it all together, reminds yeah. you that it happened in a way. Yeah, um, th- that's right. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Can you talk? I want to go back again to this idea of the of the thing you cut. You said you just told us a little bit about it. It would be amazing one day if audiences got to see what the emotional piece with Unchained Melody that you showed studios. Can you tell us about just that building that and 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 knowing that you're building something to convince studios to do something once I think way more commonplace this kind of movie, but today much harder to get the big check written out to do. Mm. Yeah, sh- sure. Baz's pitch drills can be quite elaborate. Uh, sometimes we shoot some actors who, who uh, might play out a scene, and and we kind of cut that into in, into the, you know the context of of the greater idea. In the case of Elvis, basically we created a reel which was meant to be semi kind of educational. You know, kind of remind whoever's looking at us that you know Elvis Presley looked like this and you know he did lots of different things he was a singer in the 50s uh he was an actor in the 60s he became a singer again at the end of the 60s and the 70s and so semi-educational uh mm-hmm. or infomercially but it's also stylistic and, and it's, it's it's more kind of showing whoever's looking at the piece this isn't necessarily what the movie's going to be about because you know there's no real narrative to the piece but it's going to feel like this. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be visually exciting. It's going, it's going to, you know, have an interesting twist on the music. And, you know, kind of, I think we were quite successful in that. The, the Unchained Melody piece, which was a separate thing, was was more of an emotional thing. You know, kind of, you know, that piece of footage of Elvis singing Unchained Melody is just so, his voice is just incredible. Mm-hmm. And when you kind of intercut that, of a man only weeks away from death with, you know, images of him from the fifties and the sixties where he, he looks so beautiful. You, you can't yeah. help but, but be emotional and be affected by that. So, so that was the effect of, of that was the intent of that piece was to create, you know, kind of something quite emotional. Yeah. Um, there's so much going kind of also back to one of our earlier questions, but, but rounding it out a little, there's so much to his life and only so much time. And it's a long runtime as it is, though it moves, moves well. How, what were the conversations like about pieces that had to go? You know, there, there's, there could be so much more about every stage of his life, but certain stages of his life had less time and, and certain had more. And were there great sequences that you guys had to lose and have tough conversations about? And, yeah, I'm I'm really curious to know that for for all filmmakers it's always interesting to know about how those decisions are made. Well, George, the original assembly of the film was 4 hours 20 something minutes long. And that was it was that, that, that was with everything. We called that we called that cut the kitchen sink because it had everything in it including the kitchen sink. Um and Baz invited, yeah, that, that, was, that was essentially the assembly that John and I uh, put together during the shoot um, with, with a few enhancements musically and so on. But basically it was our assembly. And, you know, kind of 
Bez, which would normally just be seen by John Omer self and Bez, but Bez is is a is a wonderful collaborator, and and he did invite a lot of the heads, some heads of department in to watch that screening uh, at four hours twenty. There was an intermission in the middle of it, and uh, and we all sort of sat in a in a big theatre and and watched it, and it really did play. Um, and a lot of the you know John and I just saw the mountain of work ahead of us, but for the others, <laughs> and, and, and for the others for the others that hadn't seen it, they they came out, and a lot of them were were quite you know visibly moved by the by the film. And, yeah. and and it really and really did play, and so we we were buoyed by that to a certain extent. We knew we had a, a wonderful sort of lump of clay from which to to sort of uh, carve the the film of you know of a theatrically releasable kind of length. Uh, but yes, there was definitely babies that had to be thrown out, and I guess probably the the um, approach. And we went through iteration after iteration after iteration, as you can imagine, and the length. Yeah. Sort of Grew and shrunk and grew and shrunk, but at the end of the day, this was the film. The approach that we decided to take was: mm. the film is about Elvis and the Colonel. So, so mm. things like you know, uh, big scenes with Elvis's first girlfriend, mm. beautiful though, beautiful though they were, and and wonderfully acted, and the sets were beautiful and so on. But the, you know, things like that just naturally kind of fell away and 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 more more relationship with his first band with scotty moore and so on again beautiful as they were but those sort of things so they just weren't keeping on narrative point of of get the colonel and elvis together as fast as we can and and then it's just all about the the kind of the the, the relationship that happened from that point forward so that that was kind of that was our approach mainly and and from that necessity to to uh to trim things down you know we started to to play with an experiment with you know uh intercutting various scenes together we mentioned earlier that you know the the pentecostal tent kind of yeah uh that was that was always planned for but a lot of similarly styled uh sequences throughout the film that weren't planned for and were just born out of necessity for you know things like um when elvis is walking down beale street in the middle of the day uh, and then when he's arriving outside his his home, you know, he pulls up in the truck and does his hair in the truck, and then gets out and walks, and he's mocked by the by the school by the um the neighbourhood sort of cool guys. They were, <clears throat> they existed as two completely independent scenes in two independent parts of the film, but you know they just couldn't sustain themselves for the for the length that they were. So um, we sort of in, intercut those two things together with the with the philosophy that this was showing these two very different parts of Elvis's life that, that he, he didn't, he sort of, he belonged to both of these, these places, but didn't belong to either of them. You know, he, he didn't mm-hmm. really belong on Beale street and, and he didn't really belong in these, these white housing projects. So, so we, you know, we, we thought on our feet a lot of the time and, 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 mm. and just, and, and, and did these things to, um, but, but always with like a narrative device. And of course, so just, just to get back to the point, and that was, that was the colonel telling us that uh, that Elvis didn't really belong in, in either of these places, and he was always destined to to sort of go on the road and, and achieve greater things. So, so I was always condensing the narrative, but keeping it on point with what was the colonel's perspective on what we were seeing. You know, it was a very organic process, as Matt said. The original cut was four and a half hours long, four hours twenty minutes long. Uh, the first act alone was two hours long, but we didn't. Getting back to your question, we didn't kind of go, oh, we can only allocate kind of 45 minutes to uh, to the 50s. 
uh, Baz wasn't prescriptive in, in, in any way in, in that regard. So it was just really kind of, we ended up kind of where, where we did through an organic process of, of kind of trial and error. So it was more go by feel and less like by this point in minute runtime, I want to be in 1966 or something like that. Right. That's right. Yeah. 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 But, but you, and as it ended up, there was a good amount of time sort of around the explosion of fame and, and the consequences of his (laughs) controversy. And then a good amount of time around his return. You know, there was, it, it felt like there were multiple, like almost tent poles that you built action sequences, like in some movies you would build around, like first, yeah. first thing at, at the, the hay, you know, and then the television special and then Vegas, like, you know, there were certain like points yeah. that yeah. They were like, we're going to build around these. Was that sort of the approach? Pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. There was kind of like a, a you know, a set piece or two per period of his life, you know, and, and but it wasn't, it was, again, it wasn't prescriptive to that. It was just, you know, the, there was a musical set piece per, per, uh, you know, point sequence. Yeah. yeah or act. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, there's, there's, we, we don't see a whole lot of Hollywood and we don't see a whole lot of, you know, real decline in drug use. Um, were those <clears throat> things that there was more of, or were there decisions that were like, we're going to not dwell on this. You know, where they're like, we really need to prioritize this part of what happened, you know, or 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 was it uh, just like you said, organic? Like it just didn't fit with the kernel and stuff. There was definitely more uh, dramatized versions of the decline. Um, and, 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 you know, things are represented in there. For example, the you know the the girl on his bed in the hotel room and him, you know, him shooting at the TVs, right. And, uh, as well as Priscilla and uh, Elvis's breakup, they were, they all exist in much longer sort of dramatized forms. But again, that was just sort of a tool of of condensing the film down. That we sort of just uh, in in that big burning love montage sort of went from from the heights of Vegas to the to the depths of his decline. And we just had to kind of we just as Jonah said, we it was just all very evolutionary and organic. We we were just um. We had them in there for the longest time as full sequences, and then we just couldn't sort of dwell on them for that long, so they they came down, but but always through a, a very uh, organic process of of trial and error. And as for the well, Hollywood, you so yeah. As for the Hollywood, we used, you know, at that that was always intended to be a, a montage. There was never much yeah. more to it than that. Okay, yeah, and that, that, that just yeah. would have been opening, opening a whole can of worms. <laughs> It was kind of more of a, yeah, as Matt said, I, but Baz always felt kind of, well, it could be a movie in its own right, the 60s. <laughs> uh, so, you could do a movie uh, just about the, mem- I mean, you guys made probably like five movies within this movie <laughs> that you could yeah. cut and release as like, this is just about the Memphis Mafia. We have a movie about that, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, Baz kind of made a pr- pretty early decision to, uh, to basically montage the 60s, the, the Hollywood phase. Uh, just because, as you say, it could be moving its own right. And, you know, he, he wanted enough screen time to tell the story of the 50s and then, you know, kind of the 60s and the 70s as well. He wanted to focus on the highlights of his, his career and the 68 special would, was to Baz a bit more interesting than, you know, kind of going into Hollywood, wanting to be a serious actor. And then, you know, he's having lots of fun. He's having lots of fun. And then yeah, he's not having lots of fun. And, yeah, like... You know, yeah, you said that that uh, the music kind of carried you. It was more about his music, right? 
mm-hmm. yeah. the story you were telling. Um, yeah, this is a, I, we're, we're running a little bit out of time, but so I want to end on this, even though I could keep asking you questions for a very long time, <laughs> but I want to know, like, you know, you spend a lot of time, you, like you said, had tons of footage and you had a four hour cut assembly plus. How do you maintain a perspective on what is working or not in the trenches after all this time with Elvis? Like at some point, I imagine you must have been like, I can't listen to more, any more Elvis anymore. I don't <laughs> like, how do you maintain perspective on what's working and what's not? For any editor, that's a challenge. But I imagine with a project like this, it's, it's like exacerbated. Well, collaborating with a, with a fantastic team as, as, as we did, you know, kind of working with great music guys, great art department, you know, we're all kind of constantly bouncing off each other and, and, and everyone's kind of, um, always brutally honest with, with each other as well. So kind of working in a team kind of helps give you an element of perspective on, on what you're doing and what you're looking at day in, day out. Um, also Baz, you know, kind of, we very often have in, internal screenings and, uh, Baz will very often have an in-depth uh, discussion with the various different team members afterwards and go out for dinner and talk about it. And, you know, it was, it was a very collaborative process, which helps give you a bit of a perspective. Then, you know, towards the end, we had test screenings and, you know, kind of sometimes as brutal as some of the answers can be, it, it also kind of helps, you know, kind of guide you towards uh, where you need to go. So you just keep an open mind to all those, the collaborators and the voices and, and kind of let it filter through and help guide you. Very much so. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and an amazing job on the film. Uh, it's a real treat. All the work you put in uh, shows. And uh, we, oh, we all appreciate it. The showing I went to was a weeknight. It was late. And there were tons of people in the theater, which made me happy. <laughs> oh, fantastic. That <laughs> makes great, us happy great. too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thank you so much, George. It's been a real privilege talking to you. And, yeah, and it's a delight to sort of, uh, you know, to, to, to share stories from the trenches with, um, with an audience that sort of um, to, that, uh, that, that appreciates them and, and wants to know about them a little bit more. It's a, it's a real privilege. And thank you, thank for, you. For, for bringing those stories to, to light. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. We'll talk yeah. next time, I hope. <laughs> I hope <laughs> next so. time you yeah. have one. Okay. Have a good thank weekend. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Thanks, Jonathan and Matt, for coming on. You know, the editing of Elvis is so much of what makes it, but you'd be nowhere without these amazing visuals. And the two things obviously meld together so perfectly. And part of that is through the prep and the planning. And part of that is just through the lens of Baz Luhrmann. But again, there are so many ways you could approach telling the story of Elvis. There are so many possible looks. There are so many looks of just Elvis himself and the clothes he wears, which are amazing and hilarious and bizarre and ever-shifting. And there are so many mediums he lived through and he lives in. And all of this and more plays a role in the kinds of decisions you make as a cinematographer. We're not even talking about the lighting. So, If you're ever sitting there thinking, I can do so much, there's so many possibilities, what do you choose? Well, Mandy had a step-by-step process for doing that. So here we go. Talk about it with Mandy Walker. 
I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this and congratulate you on the film. It's beautiful. There's so much to talk about. I guess the first place to start really is what were the mediums you used, the cameras, the Mm -hmm. cinematographic (laughs) process, I guess. There's so much here. There's IMAX. There's a lot going on. So can you tell us a little bit about all the different media Mm -hmm. involved? Well, for us, for our our photography, we used the Alexa 65 and we used that camera combined with Alexa LF for our high-speed shot for when we shot some things between 96 and 150 frames. So the integration of the other footage when we, we were matching stuff, that was done in post. So all the like little home movies that you see and the 16 mil footage that is representing like Elvis's early concerts and things like that, that effect was done in post-production with um, visual effects. So using a combination of live brain and, you know, just going into uh, programs that were degrading the image to match the stock footage. And so you did that sometimes even where, you know, for example, I'm thinking about the finale and Unchained Melody and having mm-hmm. Austin singing it and cutting seamlessly to mm-hmm. the actual footage of that. So also matched entirely using post-production tools and you shot it Area Alexa raw. Correct. Wow. <clears throat> yes. Correct. Yes. But we did do a lot of tests. You know, we did testing in pre-production for what would work. And then, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it later, but matching the lighting and the camera angles and the lensing was was really important in being able to do that. Yeah, that was going to be right where I was going to go next. Is So what do you have Mm -hmm. to do to replicate the lighting or at least give the team the most latitude in that regard? How much are you using vintage lens and glass and stuff Mm -hmm. like that? Mm-hmm. That's exactly what we did. I mean, we ended up. Well, I took Baz into Panavision in like August ni- uh, two thousand nineteen, I think it was, and we went and visited Dan Sasaki. And this was after Baz and I had already talked about, um, you know, the different periods of Elvis' life and the the you know different parts of American culture that he moved through and that he influenced. You know, so there was quite a lot of reference material that we looked at and there's because there's a lot of existing footage still of, of Elvis concerts, we, we studied those meticulously. So we went in to talk to Dan Sasaki and we ended up, he built us bespoke lenses basically. So mm. there's one, wow. one set of spherical lenses that take us all the way from the beginning of Elvis' life when he was, you know, 10 years old and seen running through Shake Rag to the Pentecostal tent, and then we go all the way through to Hollywood with those lenses. And then after that, when he goes to Vegas, we shot anamorphic. So the, the spherical lenses combined with we um, created a different lookup table for each of the eras as well. So we're using different LUTs that we would set. Again, like meticulously tested with costumes, art department, makeup, hair, lighting everything and so you know you start with uh the 50s and we used a lot of older footage but also stills photographers work like Sol Leiter and Gordon Parks 
and limited our colour palette quite a bit to, to represent that era. And then I would push the blacks a little bit. And then by the time we get to Hollywood, we're in like a Kodachrome look. And there was, I had more depth of field. I pushed the colours and had more contrast. And then when we go to Vegas, so we use Ferro lenses for those, Ferro 65s that were adapted to be able to work with those looks. And then when we go to Vegas, we used T-series anamorphics and we had like, you know, all the kind of old aberrations and characteristics of those lenses put back into them that would have been mm. in that time in the 70s for a start. And, and then, you know, the, the light, I studied the lighting meticulously of this footage and also the camera angles and we got in some zooms too, some medium zooms and some long zooms, some spherical and some anamorphic zooms as well. Because, for instance, in the 68 special, we would get our, when, as soon as the set started to be built, we would get the camera operators and the groups of myself and Austin and Baz would take us through the existing concert footage. We did what he called train spotting, which was we worked out exactly where the cameras were, what lenses they were on, when they were going to zoom, how the cameras moved. And the same for the um, Las Vegas Hilton showroom. So, so you studied the existing footage and talked about exactly. exactly how you're replicating. Yeah. So for me also, it was about lighting too, because a lot of the lights were in shot, you know, in the TV studio and also on the concert footage, a lot of the lights were in shot. So I scoured the whole of the country in Australia for old rock and roll lights and TV lights from the period. Mm. And we had those in the sets and we used them. And then what was out of shot was my modern LED lighting and, you know, concert movers that could change colour. And um, we used, you know, LED 360s and S60s, Arri, to light the backdrops because we had more control of the colour. But there was like parkans that we found, you know, old 70s parkans with gels in them, you know, that we had to make. To have those used on camera, but also to provide light, correct? Exactly. They were also so doing a, their job as lights <laughs> and as set yeah. as parts of the set dressing. Exactly. They would do both. And then I would integrate in my lighting. You know, especially in the in the in the sixty eight special, I had all those lights on. And then just to kind of smooth out the look, make it a little bit more cinematic, I added LEDs. And but they're off camera. And then of course, you know, there's the, the drama of the film. So we're replicating the concerts, but for instance, you know, when you're in the showroom, you keep coming back to the colonel in the audience or Priscilla or other people. Mm-hmm. So there was the drama of the scene and then there was the train spotting of the scene. We knew exactly what we are doing at certain. And, you know, you, you see Austin's performance, and I'm sure the editors talk about this, is that he was so perfect every time that my camera operators would study his moves mm. and and be going, okay, he's going to put his hand up right now and I'm ready for that and I tilt up or, you know, I'm going to get the kick that goes out there or we're going to spin around at this moment. So we're really, you know, very well prepared for all that. Did you do multiple cameras for some yeah. of the performances? We, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. We shot, most days we shot three cameras all the time for the drama sequences. And occasionally, you know, like we're in a very tight spot, we would use one or two. But most of the time we had three cameras there. And then for the concert sequences, we had four. And I think for one of the Vegas shows, we had five, if you included, you know, Steadicam that would be playing some of the time. 
so yeah, we, we had multiple cameras all the time. And was he, how many times, for example, on some of these, on the concert performances, would he, would Austin run through the whole performance or would you do chunks? And because you had multiple cameras, I'm really curious how you approached with Baz, like chopping it up. Well, we actually shot all of the performances, every one of the songs in its entirety. And he just did it um, like he was doing a live concert. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And, and. And actually, for the, the the showroom, the first concert at the showroom, he ran, I think it was three, the editors might know better than me, three or four songs in a row. Like he did a performance that went for 20 minutes, around 20 minutes, that was that those songs all in a row, like he was doing it, doing it live. And wow. we recorded it every time, yeah. So one of the things I noticed, and especially as you were explaining the look and the going with mm-hmm. the the matching and the the spotting with the um, original footage is that Austin does not look that much like Elvis Presley. He looks enough like him, but the performance, you are so convinced. It's so, you're sold. And I think so much of that has to do with the attention to detail on creating the familiar circumstances of an Elvis performance that we know Elvis through footage we've seen over and over again of him performing. Mm-hmm. So right from mm-hmm. the, from the jump on, you know, on TV, when you go from him, I mean, I know there's the hayride, but as soon as you go, we start seeing him pop up on TVs and we start seeing him pop up in the 68 special in places or on the movies where we've seen him. And it looks like the way those looked. And I think that really heightened the illusion sold us on it. Did you talk with Baz about that a lot, about how that's going to be part of, you know, creating the our belief in this? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, the thing that Austin has is the charisma and the charm and, you know, that amazing kind of nuances that were Elvis and he emoted them. And it was about capturing that. And, and that was very important. And you, you could see that in you know the way that Baz got that performance out of Austin, and and we enhanced it. You know that's what we were there to do, and and to create like like you were saying, replicating the exact moves of those concerts and the exact lighting and and camera angles and things. It just made that moment right, and it's the same with you know the editing. We were saying about um, the split screen sequences. Mm-hmm. We we yeah. rehearsed those too, and we, we shot them knowing that you know things change and some of the stock footage changed, but the, some of the specific ones we did, he would be in the centre of frame, or you know there was a even a, um, a sequence where he's jumping backstage into a limousine and and driving away, and we tried to get the feeling of that. So it was about, you know, with Baz, it's always, it's not just sort of capturing a moment, it's capturing that atmosphere and and the emotional resonance of the scene. And so that, as you say, that's a very good point, is what makes you believe, you know? Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about when you shoot a sequence like knowing it's going to be split screen and that being part of the plan? Or the sequence that that really I think defines so much of what you all did on this film, which is the the mixture of his influences as a child at the Pentecostal tent and looking in and seeing the jazz beat or the blue R and B sort of being played, and then also his first performance 
those things are all intercut and interspersed and they're like flashbacks within flashbacks within stories. And it, and it creates this combination between seeing the music come together, but also seeing his, you know, life explained. It was planned to be shot in a certain way. So when you did each piece, you kind of knew or discussed how the, the sequence would come together from, from a cinematography mm-hmm. perspective. Absolutely. So what we would do, I mean, I did a lot of prep on this movie, probably about 16 weeks, I think. And a lot of that was, you know, once we were all there, we would basically get everybody together to, to meet and we would all be there, the editors, the costume art department, myself. And then later on when when um, my camera operators were on board and grips and everybody, so we knew we had uh, he had planned that all ahead. So then we would shoot tests and we could shoot, quite extensive tests that had all the elements there. For instance, you know, when we were planning on all the Vista liner sequences, you know, the the, um, the motorhome that he has outside MGM, the, the red with the red yeah. velvet, there's a few scenes in that. We, the art department built like a mock-up of it and we had the lighting that we were going to use being tested and they'd have like the different colour reds and textures. And, and the other thing we did, was we knew, Baz said, I want to do a crane shot that pulls through from the back all the way through to the front and follows Elvis walking down. So we built it around our crane. So things like that mm. were very meticulously planned and, and worked out. And and also, you know, tests with our, our lights and our lighting and what we put in shot. And we also built the we built the ground roads too. So because we knew that the audience were going to be climbing all over the ground roads for the Hayride concert and for Russ Wood. And so we put, built LEDs and we worked with the art department to put cool LEDs that don't get hot um, so that they looked the same as the period ones, but they they definitely couldn't have been a real rock and roll light because people would be burning themselves. Yeah. So that but, there's so but, many yeah. things. There's so many things to follow up on here, like intricacies. Like when I think when you talk about the tests, so many elements also visual effects, right? Because there's all kinds of visual effects happening all the time in Mm -hmm. expanding the space or giving us, you know, I'm sure even in places where I had no clue that they were being utilized, I'm sure they were. So when you do these tests, I don't know if you can answer this question, but we can try. How do you guys as a group isolate the variables you want to see? Because like, just for example, he's wearing so many different colors and costumes. Mm -hmm. How do you try, like, if you're going to try we want to test different lights. We want to test different color shirts. We want to test different color rooms and camera. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and makeup yeah. probably. How do you mm-hmm. pick which ones to vary so it's scientific? Or do you just do like different combinations? Like, I mean, trying to wrap my head around it. So like if filmmakers are curious and they want to do their own yeah. kinds of tests and stuff, like how do you yeah. pick the things to change and when? Okay, so... First of all, we start with going through the script and, and talking about story and then Baz will talk about, you know, the elements of the story that, that are, he sees in his mind, you know, like he'll say, I, this is transporting or this is going to be part of the montage or this is going to be, you know, for instance, when we were on the, um, the Vegas showroom, he said, and I want it to be built as one so that we can move from behind the backdrop to the stage and in front of the stage and when the curtains comes down we can move between the audience to 
behind the curtain, you know, so all, all that sort of stuff was planned and we'd write notes and and then the other thing was, you know, having, I mean, Catherine Martin and Baz have a lot of research done before anyone comes on and so they had like all the historical influences of, and, uh, you know, the home movies we looked at and, and the existing footage of Elvis. So we studied all that stuff first. And then when we talk about the story, for instance, like where he grew up in, in Tupelo and Shake Rag, where you're saying he goes to the Duke joint then he goes to the Pentecostal church, well, we had like we'd all bring our own kind of references and inspiration. You know, for me it was photographically and for Catherine it was, you know, colour palette or costume or uh, and things like that. And we'd, we'd make a little mock-up and shoot a test with with elements of each. And we did a lot of those. Like, I cannot remember, but we, you know, in the last few weeks we'd shoot a lot and I would, I think I'd had like days where we just shot different colour red velvets or different mm. colour costume against the velvet or, you know, things like that. So it was all very, you know, it was discussion comes first and the yeah. options and, and Baz will explain because he is one of those people that, he has a film in his head, you right. know, and he'll something will come up and he'll say, No, it's not that, it's that. And let you show me this and this and I'll tell you which one it is. And I he's see. So very, he had kind of priorities yeah. in mind yeah. for each thing that he Absolutely. wanted. Like, we're and, definitely going to do this and then we'll rotate yes. these to try them. I see. Yeah. Um, or I want it to feel like this, Mandy. And, you know, he'd say, Like, so when. We did that car park sequence, you know, where at the end where the colonel tells Elvis he can't leave. You know, he, he'd yes. say to me, well, it's got to be dark in here, but I want it to look like this and I want to feel the golden elevator that's going to take him back to his room. And so he talks like that and so that's in my mind I think, okay, so we have like a, a brighter gold light in the elevator but it's green in the car park. It's it's ominous and it's it doesn't feel like he's safe you know mm. and things like that so it starts sort of metaphorically and then turns into physical i see and that does help answer in a lot of ways i'm also curious how you try to break sometimes between i don't know how to put it but it's like almost subjective and objective like there's scenes that mm -hmm. are shot so much like uh, you know, it's it's a whirlwind. It's it's we're inside a camera, and then yep. there's scenes that are shot so much like we're in a regular scene in a movie between Priscilla Presley. The scenes between like Priscilla and Elvis stand out as sort of almost mm -hmm. a little conventional compared to a lot mm -hmm. of the scenes where I it feels like we're through Colonel Parker's memory or or something. Mm -hmm. um, did you guys talk about the script together and like, hey, it's going to be this? We're going to do this way. This one we're going to do this way. And, and yes. like what determined those factors? Yeah, that you're exactly right. We did. And, and, and that's something that, you know, Baz and myself talk about really early on in terms of photographically, you know. it's, it's um, And I remember one of the things that we talk, you know, in Colonel Parker says to Elvis, you know, are you ready to fly? And mm -hmm. our camera flies. Yeah. It, it's a, it flies. And so... A lot of the time when we're going through this whirlwind of these experiences that he's having and the and the kind of his rise to being the king and being Elvis Presley and being a star, 
the camera is flying with him. You know, we're 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 moving around all the time, and they were on cranes all the time, and or the steadicam's moving, or he, the, you know, we knew that we're going to fast cut from here and moving to this. You know, so there was transitions, and then when the drama gets heavy, the camera slows down. And when the drama is intense, so like you're saying, a very good pickup is when he's with Priscilla and, you know, when Mahalia Jackson sings when Martin Luther King dies and they're watching TV and or when Elvis <gasps> is with his mother, you know, those scenes when he's with his yes. um, mother. And so it's sort of like I was saying to someone the other day, you know, there's a lot of times where you're on a film and every so often you do a big dramatic move. Well, we kind of the opposite in this film because the camera's <laughs> moving around yeah. really wildly and then it stops. And when when the drama gets heavy and it's all about just these performances and the dialogue and those special moments, we didn't move hardly at all. So it's about, you know, creating that world for an audience, even if they experience it unconsciously. It's about making them feel what was going on at the time for the characters. And the other thing we did do, you know, we had, you just reminded me, we mm-hmm. shot with a Petsvale lens too, which is a, it's an old lens from, it's built around uh, from glass from a projector lens in the 1880s, I think huh. it is. And Dan wow. Sasaki built it for us also. And you'll notice it's in the scenes where it's really crazy, like it's part of the, you know, morphine-induced memories of the colonel or, you know, when Elvis collapses in the hallway. And it's sort of okay. like... Okay. I was wondering yeah, like about those. Like, was there what was the yeah. visual... Some of those sections, the morphine-induced or the collapse, yeah. were those sort of... Uh, yeah, can you talk about doing them? They definitely stick out from the rest of the stuff. And I guess the lens yeah. is part of it. Were there other... Fa- were there visual effects factors? Obviously, there was lighting factors. Yeah, lighting and visual effects. And... We, but... For me, it was like I tried to create like this vortex effect, you mm. know, for the audience that, that, you know, when it's sort of an old-fashioned thing and I wanted to do it in camera and do it organically mm. is when you're only focusing on the centre and you feel like you're going down a tunnel, you know, mm. that, that kind of effect. And then the camera would sometimes spin around or, you know, take off and spin around in a circle and things like that. And, again, you know, they were all really planned, meticulously planned the transitions and and um, between those scenes, you know, where the camera does slow down and where, you know, like the way, and of course, with cutting, it gets enhanced because there's things that Baz and the editors discover later on that, you know, oh, hey, maybe we're going from this scene to this scene and how are we going to do that? And then a visual effect would help. But mm-hmm. also the way, I mean, I always feel now my job is to, check in and be on the same page and be very communicative with visual effects very early on in the movie so that, um, you know, we, the visual effects of myself would go to Baz and with Catherine Martin and be going, well, the background here, this is blue screen, what's going to be there and where's the light coming from? Where's the sun? What's the weather like? And, and how do you want, what time of day do you want it to feel for this scene? And just have very meticulous notes that would cue the lighting and the colour and 
and things like that. Um, That's a really good point. I thought about it a lot after because I think a lot of uh, audiences, obviously audiences, don't recognize how much of this stuff is added in later. So a lot of what mm-hmm. you're shooting, there's there's a plate. It's going to be a plate because there's no background. Mm-hmm. And I'm imagining probably seen at the Hollywood sign or a couple yes. other ones that were just like, I'm sure you had to figure out exactly what you're talking about, what time of day, what kind of light, you know, yeah. all those things. And if you don't yeah. have a clear plan, it's not going to come together. So how, yeah. how hard is it these days as mm-hmm. a cinematographer? It's a new kind of challenge, right? Than it used mm-hmm. to be where you just show up with a camera and your gear and like craft the light there. Now you're kind of like doing it, like you're deciding really what kind of light yeah. <laughs> like you could do whatever you want in a way. Exactly. And, you know, if you think about we shot the whole film in Australia. We didn't go to the United States to shoot anything. So we recreated Beale Street, four blocks of Beale Street on a back lot and Graceland on, on a location, the exterior of Graceland, and that Shake Rag Tupelo where young Elvis is, a 10-year-old Elvis. We created those places and then they were extended in visual effects. So and Las there Vegas. Was a lot of, <laughs> Don't forget Las Vegas. La, absolutely <laughs> Las Vegas, yes. So there was, there was, you know, we have, I mean, Catherine works with a concept artist very early on and a lot. so a lot of the, the triggers for the extensions or the actual locations were, were done in concept art. So we all had a clue of, of where where Bass was going. Where the lines would be between practical. That's the other thing. There's such a merging of what you're doing practically and what you're doing digitally now and making those kinds of decisions. Like this is where we're going to be and this is what we're going to have in front of us. Makes a big difference. The kind of the follow-up, I guess, to that is just how hard is it to conceive of when you're starting out and you're putting together the sizzle, for example, did you work at all with him on the on the kind of pieces he put together, pitching studios on this is what it's going to be, knowing that you're going to do it all in Australia and you have to mm-hmm. scale it to that a little bit. Like how what what's that process like? You know, like kind of the pre pre stage of just you know this is what the movie's going to be. Uh, well, I I didn't have anything to do with the original sizzle reel, and I was shown that is a real by Baz in our first meeting when we first started talking about the movie, which I was incredibly impressive what they'd done from existing footage. So that part had already been done, but it's clues for what he wants to do. In right. The then you were faced with me. the hard part almost, which was like, okay, now how do I do this <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, exactly. in Australia on this scale, right? Because that, yes. that is the promise that, that they were giving out. Yeah, exactly. I, and I think that, you know, like you say, my job is very, it's very important to be integral with VFX and art department and concept and, and editorial, which is something that Baz does really well. You know, he makes sure that everybody, we've talked and we've all discussed, we all get together and we test together and then we look at it with the editors, you know, we'd go into the edit, edit room. So there's a harmony to the visual language, I suppose, the best way to describe it. And so by the time we roll the cameras, we all know what we're doing and we know where it's going. And, for instance, a good example of that too, I mean, most of the sets were built in three-dimensional with uh, an extension, which is also a great place to start because you have a physical set there to shoot. Right. And then, and then for you know, like the, the facade of Graceland and, you know, then we built the interiors on another stage 
on a stage, and but also, you know, the, the historical part of it. And we knew that Beale Street was going to be built on one level and then the second um, story was being done in post. And I see. The tricky part of that one was also that Club Handy was on stage. So the the connection of Club Handy to him coming, driving down the street and, and walking to Club Handy and B.B. King out the window, you know, all those things were storyboarded and planned so that we knew the connection. And, and carefully um, sort of stitched together. Exactly. Seamless, the seamlessly stitched and, together, but yeah, very challenging, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah, it is. And it just... It's one of those things that's just, it's prep, you know, it's preparing and, and communicating and, and Baz being able to tell us what's in his head. You know, that, that's a really important. And because the fourth time I've worked with him, I know how he approaches things right from the start and, and that, we, you know, we start discussions and then we start talking about reference and visuals and, you know, then we start practically doing them. It's, it's a, there's a methodology to it to, to create those images that end up as well, you know, like you were saying, they're seamless in the end because they're just so well-crafted and uh, planned. I really appreciate all the time and, and uh, we've gone a, a little bit over, but I'll finish on, on one final thing. Just, you know, mm-hmm. in, in all, all the prep and the planning and just putting this thing together, did you look at certain influences like it's been said to me about this movie that he Baz would say biopic was a dirty word, sort of like that was that was an avoidance, like to not fall into traps of the familiarity of yes. the subgenre. But what you know, what sources besides all the Elvis footage that exists, you know, mm-hmm. kind of like this movie moves, like you said, it flies. It has a subjective yes. camera, really. What were there any things you looked at, or were you just talking mostly about? that the goals he had for for it or did he have stuff let's talk about this movie or let's look at this footage or something like that i think um for instance you know like i was saying because there's a lot of existing footage um of elvis so we sort of started there and then being able to you know do our train spotting and and but i felt like you know there wasn't any other films that existed that were going to be our movie Yes, and it, and because Baz is always truly original, so you never sort of he's never going to say, "Oh, I want it to look like you know, this." It's going to be this film. It's going to be Baz's film <laughs> and his his vision, which is always exciting and new. And and so when you first start off, you know you're going to be building something from scratch that is a new, you know, a, a experience for people. And, yes. and also, my, same thing for my crew too. No. Yeah, I mean, I, I I asked it kind of thinking that that might be the answer, but it's part of what's enjoyable mm-hmm. about settling into one of his movies is that, which is nothing wrong with going off influences, certainly, but that you kind of know you're mm-hmm. going to experience something different. That's very unique yes. and, and you're you're on a ride and there's nothing quite like it. Exactly. That is, a, that, that, that's exactly what it's like. And I think it makes it so that, you know, so many people I talk to have said, I've got to see it again. Because there's so much information there, and that uh, it's two and a half hour film, but you need to to get all those little nuances that he puts in. You have to go and see it twice, at least twice. <laughs> and there's a four hour plus cut, apparently. That there one you day go. <laughs> I would love, yeah. I would love to see all the stuff that didn't make it. I'm sure there was some <laughs> impressive elements. 
Me too. Me too. Well, look, like I was saying, we worked very, very hard to create his vision, and and I'm really proud of it. I am so proud of what we did. That that um, you know, and just being being comfortable by the time you shoot, knowing what what's going to be in front of the camera is really important on his movies. You know, because it, it helps us flow. And it wasn't a really long shoot. It was like 91 days or something for so much. You know, if you say wow. it's a four-hour, you know, film, it, it was pretty quick. And it was because we were really prepared. That's uh, that's sort of the lesson then, is the more you prepare, yes. the more. It feels almost improvisational, but obviously <laughs> it's, it's far from mm. that. But the way it moves no. as well. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and uh, really oh, appreciate it. my pleasure, George. My pleasure. A, Thank you, Have George. a great weekend. Thanks, Mandy, for coming on the podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I highly recommend you go see this movie in theaters. Uh, recently, they said they were going to keep it away from the streaming services for a little longer. They want people to see it in theaters. It's a great theater movie. I went out at 9 p.m. on a weeknight to a local theater in the part of the world I live in where there's not a whole lot happening at 9 p.m. anymore. It's quiet. And it was a very crowded theater of young people in the middle of the week, which I think bodes well for the theater model, but also means people like this movie. It's attracting people. And like I said at the beginning, you would think something like the musical biopic would be tired enough. Hell, they've even parodied it at this point with Walk Hard. And that was a long time ago. So to still be doing it and chasing it is kind of like, are we still really doing this like earnestly? And the answer is, yeah, if you're going to do it the way that Baz Luhrmann's doing it by actually revealing elements of the story that a lot of us don't know, but also telling it in an energetic, lively enough fashion that it becomes a thing unto itself. Most amazingly, perhaps, is that this stands alone as a great piece of work, really aside from Elvis, who is monumental as a performer and a piece of work in, its, in his own right. So... Enjoy the film, enjoy the interview, and I hope you learned a lot. Be sure to check out all kinds of filmmaking news, tutorials, education, and other fun stuff at nofilmschool.com. We have a newsletter where you'll get all the stuff we're doing, and you can always like, rate, and subscribe to this podcast. It helps us grow, helps people find out about us. Send us your questions about filmmaking and movies to editor at nofilmschool.com. Com. We try to answer those on our weekly show, which always releases on Thursday mornings, just like these interviews always release on Tuesday mornings. And I say always, but I mean mostly always. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you're having a great day. Mm-hmm.